U.S. Navy Lieutenant Commander Alex Dietrich was going about her business this spring, getting ready to retire from active duty as one of the first female fighter pilots in the U.S. Then she got an unexpected feeler from 60 Minutes, the CBS television show. The U.S. government was preparing to release a report on unidentified flying objects or UFOs. Would Dietrich be willing to go on the show and talk about the strange sight that she and her four teammates had seen up in the air during a training mission back in 2004, the 60 Minutes producer asked. Hello everyone, I'm Chitra Raghavan and this is When It Mattered. Dietrich thought hard about it and decided that taxpayers needed to know more about the videos, now unclassified, that had been captured that day, videos that you all may have seen on the news over the past few weeks. That decision to go public and help remove the stigma associated with reporting strange sightings or inexplicable phenomena has put the introverted and media-shy Dietrich in the spotlight. It has also connected her to legions of UFO believers on social media, a rather strange spot for someone to be in, who is not a science fiction fan, despite a rich family history in science fiction writing. Joining me is retired Lieutenant Commander Alex Dietrich. She served as an F-A-18F strike fighter pilot from the VFA-41 Black Aces of Lemoore, California. Dietrich retired from the U.S. Navy after 20 years of service, having logged more than 1,250 hours and 375 carrier-arrested landings. She served two combat deployments in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. Dietrich is now serving at the National Center for Atmospheric Research on their talent learning and development team with a mission of science and service to society. Alex, welcome to When It Mattered. Thank you. Why did you decide to join the Navy and become a fighter pilot? It's a rather non-traditional career, pretty formidable barriers and a daunting challenge uh, in addition to uh, putting your life on the line in service of your country. Well, I would say that I was a typical teenager. Uh, I went to uh, an atypical high school. It was the Illinois Math and Science Academy, but I had sort of the typical teenage uh, angst and and you know, I, I wanted to have fun. I wanted to have an adventure. Uh, and so when college counselors and, and teachers were asking me what I wanted to do, what, I had to declare a major for college uh, and I had to take all of these standardized tests. I, I said, oh, I, you know, I don't know what I want to study and I don't really know what I want to do. Um, I thought, well, maybe I could have an adventure. Maybe I could do something fun uh, first and then settle down later in life. And so that's why I decided to pursue uh, naval aviation. Uh, and I did that through the NROTC scholarship at George Washington University. Uh, so four years of you know, going and having a normal college experience, but also doing some summer training uh, with the Navy and, and some naval science courses throughout the year. Uh, and then I graduated and commissioned in May of 2001 uh, into the Navy. So your initial goals weren't all that lofty and ambitious. No, not at all. Again, I was. It was all about me and 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 my selfish adv adventure and and wanting to do something cool and exciting while I was young and and had the energy and. But all of that changed on the day of your first flight, uh, which also happened to be on 9-11. That must have been quite a, a, a day for you. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I, I, I graduated again in May of 2001, and I headed down to the beach in Pensacola, Florida, which is where our ground school is, 
uh, we call it Aviation Preflight Indoctrination, API. Uh, and then from there, I went to Corpus Christi, Texas for flight school for our primary flight training in just little T-34 turboprop planes. Uh, and we were just doing the initial, we call it a FAM phase or familiarization uh, when 9-11 happened. And obviously that was a huge shock to the, to the country, to, to the world. Uh, but for, for me and, and my peers, it was a, a total paradigm shift. We realized that you know, it wasn't about it wasn't about me and my selfish adventure that I had raised my right hand and taken an oath and an oath of service and and service to something bigger than myself. And I needed to figure out what that meant and how I was going to contribute in a meaningful way. And that must have been an incredible sort of change in your perspective. Uh, I want to go back a little bit in time uh, from before 9-11, when you were actually in flight school that summer, you were given a very unusual and interesting extra credit question in an otherwise uh, kind of boring FAA manual that you described to me a couple of days ago as a sleeping pill of a, of a manual. What was that extra question that you were given? Yeah, so this was some interesting foreshadowing. Uh, so summer of 2001 and my initial... Uh, ground school flight training, this flight rules and regulations course where they're teaching us about civilian airspace and how to stay out of trouble and not get a flight violation. Uh, there was an extra credit question that said, what do you do if you see a UFO? How do you report it? And my peers and I thought it was an absurd question, that it was silly, that it was a trick. But then when we opened up this thick FAR AIM manual, that's the FAA's Flight Rules and Regulations Manual, we, we opened it up and we said, huh, there actually is this page in here uh, with this you know, phone number to call when you see a UFO. And I thought, I thought that's weird, <laughs> that's weird, that's cool. And also what a brilliant teaching technique that this instructor found this absurd little tidbit to include and, and serve as a hook. Uh, to get us to actually open up the book and, and read through it. And I guess it became very relevant, uh, which you probably didn't realize at the time, uh, but fast forwarding to November 14, 2004, that question actually became relevant to you and your team. There were four of you who were up in the air on a training mission. Tell us briefly what happened next. What did you see? Yes, yeah, so we had we were launched and, and expecting to do this routine training mission off the coast of Southern California. Uh, when we were vectored to intercept a real-world contact that the USS Princeton, one of our uh, other sh the other ships in our battle group, was picking up on their radar, and uh, when we merged with it, uh, we saw something weird in the water, some disturbance, uh, and then we saw this weird flying tic-tac-shaped object uh, that we engaged with, and uh, it, it disappeared almost as as fast and abruptly as it as it came into the picture and and we were we were shocked we were confused we were um, alarmed uh, <laughs> that, it, that we couldn't identify it visually that uh, the Princeton wasn't able to identify it from their radar uh, and then a follow-on flight um, a single aircraft with two people uh, was able to get some clear footage of it um, but again from that we weren't able to identify what it was or or how it was maneuvering in the strange way that it was. 
so uh, when we came back to the ship, one of the first things I said was, Where's, does anybody have a copy of the far aim manual? I need to find that page with that phone number to call to report a <laughs> UFO. Um, but the, the other aircraft in my flight, uh, the, the lead aircraft was my commanding officer, Commander Dave Fravor, and he was the skipper of the squadron, the most senior uh, aviator in my chain of command. And so uh, I, I didn't uh, call a phone number <laughs> or call the FAA <laughs> directly. I deferred to him and his seniority in terms of reporting the incident up the chain of command and, and taking any follow-up that would be appropriate. And so you were pretty, you all were pretty vocal about this. You were amazed and reported it, uh, even though probably as a junior officer, you were probably a little concerned about, you know, as you know, there's a lot of potential stigma associated with kind of disclosing these kinds of things. And people are like, you know, what, what is she talking about? Um, what happened next? Was this taken seriously? What was the next uh, couple of steps that happened? So I would say that we did a, a, a official debrief. We went to our intelligence officer, our intelligence team on the ship, and we, we gave them the information that we had. Uh, so in that respect, it was taken seriously. Uh, our, our colleagues, our, our friends, and, <laughs> and the folks on the ship certainly teased us, and, and we had a good laugh about, uh, again, sort of the absurdity of the situation. Um, you know, we're certainly conditioned as a as Americans or in our culture to, with all of our movies and TV shows, to, to make fun of, of UFOs and people who see them. So, so on a personal side, there was teasing and uh, this banter that was happening. Uh, but then on a, on a professional side, uh, I did feel that it was recorded, that the incident was noted by the chain of command. And eventually this was confirmed um, a few years later when I was contacted by uh, members of a team in, in the Pentagon who were investigating UAP incidents. Uh, and I assumed that it was part of this A-tip um, that is being referred to in, in the media that the, the first generation being A-tip and then the, the current- The organization generation. that's looking into this, yeah. Right, and I think the current title is UAP Task Force. Uh, but whatever the title, the, the intent was to make sure that they had all the information and that they were able to add this incident to a pool of, of data or similar cases to look for trends and, and do a thorough analysis. So from about 2009 until, until this year, uh, I've been in contact with in, in sort of a one-way flow. <laughs> they call me in uh, to answer questions or, about this particular incident um, and maybe show or, or, or share something that they have from a different incident and say, this, is this what you saw? Is this similar? Uh, I'll say yes or no, um, but they're not giving me a download of, of everything else <laughs> that they're looking at. <laughs> So um, just because I, I saw something weird in 2004 does not mean I have insight into uh, all of these other uh, incidents that may or may or may not be happening. So, uh, so from that that point, uh, I or from that perspective, I think that yes, this 
this has been taken seriously by the Department of Defense, by the, the folks in the Pentagon who are um, looking into this as a potential national security issue, national defense, you know, is this an adversary? Is this some sort of disruptive technology that's either uh, a, an immediate kinetic threat off the coast of California, uh, or is it some sort of espionage effort that is uh, collecting information on our on our systems and our tactics and our uh, in in the case of two thousand four, we were training. So you know, are they watching us to see how we maneuver and how we how we react? So I think that it is being taken seriously and, and investigated thoroughly. Now, your colleagues probably didn't know it at the time that you have this rich family history in science fiction, right? I mean, it's really amazing. Tell us a little bit about what that connection is. Yeah. So I personally, I don't uh, enjoy science fiction. I don't read it. I don't watch it. I enjoy documentaries. I think that truth is stranger than fiction and oftentimes <laughs> more entertaining. Um, but my uh, my great-grandfather, Roman Starzl, uh, was one of the, I guess, pioneers of the science fiction genre. Uh, he was a, an author and publisher of a newspaper in a small town in Iowa. Uh, and so he wrote a lot, but, but he did write these science fiction stories that were gobbled up <laughs> by folks who were when that genre was was sort of beginning in the in that era and so it's a, a legacy that my family is is proud of and and that i uh personally i've skimmed a few of his stories but i like i said i have a hard time following them because i'm just not that interested in in science fiction and and his son was also someone who was in a line of work different than writing science fiction. But at the time, the work that he was pioneering in medicine was considered almost science fiction, correct? Yeah, yeah. So um, Roman's son, uh, Thomas, who was my grandfather's brother, Thomas Starzl was, he was the pioneer of human organ transplantation. And absolutely, when he started his work, the thought of taking an, an organ out of a person and, and installing it into another body just seemed like science fiction. There was no, it, it was, folks thought he was, he was crazy. They thought he, he was like a Frankenstein mad scientist, that he had a God complex. He faced all sorts of criticism and, and friction in trying to advance this field and, and do this systematic research in the lab. Uh, but he, he eventually uh, was able to persevere. And as we know, it, it's commonplace now. I went to the DMV recently and, you know, they ask you on your driver's license, do you want to be an organ donor? <laughs> yes, no. And so we might not uh, understand the science behind it, uh, the surgical techniques or the immunosuppressive therapies, the, the medicine or the drugs that you take to prevent rejecting that donor organ, we may not understand it, but we all accept it as normal and possible. Uh, and so, yeah, that's another uh, family legacy that we're proud of and uh, that I think is a, a demonstration of being open-minded and innovative, but also grounded in the principles of, of sound science and making sure that the results are, are replicable and, and that you have evidence to back up uh, 
uh, what you're trying to do. So does that has that influenced how you're looking at these unidentified aerial phenomenon as the government now calls them or UFOs as as we know them to be? I mean, does has that sort of influenced how you see it? I'm sure people are asking you all the time, but why can't you tell us what it is? What could it be? Give us your hypothesis, yeah. right? Yeah, it's so interesting that people think that I spend a lot of time thinking about this just because I had an encounter, um, but I don't. <laughs> I had this encounter in 2004, uh, but I, it doesn't scratch that part of my brain that is really interested in pursuing the, the why behind it or the what behind it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a UFOologist. <laughs> I don't, I don't spend uh, time reading or researching this area. A lot of people do, but it's, uh, it's just not that interesting to me. I have a degree in civil engineering uh, and I chose that because I do prefer the, the hard science or the, the tangible science. I, I had courses in concrete and steel and soil and water and things that I could touch and see and really uh, visualize the, the forces involved. Uh, so when folks ask me, what do, you, what do you think it was? Or what do you think about all these other incidents that people are reporting? I say, uh, well, first of all, I don't know that those other incidents are related. Uh, I, it would be irresponsible of me to lump them all together and say they're all of the same origin or the same phenomenon. And Furthermore, I'm just not qualified to do that analysis. Uh, I, I, I don't have uh, any of the, the technical or, you know, I don't have the education to, to help me understand that degree of physics or what might be involved. So what do you think this report is going to do, this upcoming report? It's going to be released in the next couple of weeks. I mean, is it going to uh, sort of assuage all of the UFO believers out there? I mean, is it going to answer any questions? Is it going to change hearts and minds? What's your sense of it? I don't think so. You know, I, I would be really interested to hear from the social scientists uh, right now. And I have a feeling that they're probably exhausted from the last four or five years of our pol <laughs> political situation. Uh, and, and analyzing the collective psyche that, that led to, um, you know, an insurgence on the, on the Capitol. Hopefully they're all taking a well-deserved vacation. But I would like to have them weigh in on what's the psychology behind these uh, UFO believers and, and what's the sociology and the anthropology behind these communities of folks, whether they're on the extreme of the conspiracy theorists or whether they're on the extreme of the debunkers, there are these tribes that have organized around this issue. And I'm interested in, in that, how they identify, uh, how they communicate, um, what their goals are, and how many of them see this report as some sort of paradigm shift or uh, I don't I don't know I don't know what they want and and I suspect that the report won't give them what they want and part of their ethos is this anticipation that they enjoy the the pursuit of the unknown more than actually figuring out what what is behind any any one of these particular incidents yeah. 
fascinating. Um, and weirdly, you're not interested in science fiction, but this thing has now connected you to this whole world of people out there, right? They're probably reaching out to you and probably identifying with you in a certain way because you've somehow shared this experience that they, many of them believe that they've had yeah. uh, as well. It's some sort of strange karma, I guess. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that I would say, you know, I don't want anything to do with this and and I've, I've suddenly become a magnet. It's really interesting. So people have been reaching out to me for years. And it's interesting that when reporters now are calling me, they say, why, why did you decide to speak out? And, and I tell them, you know, I have never not been speaking openly about this. Uh, it's just that 60 Minutes had never called me before. Uh, and when they did, I, I agreed to talk uh, on this larger platform. But, but folks have been reaching out to me for years from serious journalists and reporters to curious citizens or, or conspiracy theorists. And so I can usually tell from their tone, whether they call me on the phone or in their email, whether they seem of sound mind and stable or whether they are, are kooky. <laughs> but the, what's interesting to me is that the there's been an uptick now since the 60 Minutes report of people who are articulate and they, they seem of absolutely sound mind who are reaching out to share their stories with me. And I don't know what they expect me to do with them. <laughs> uh, and I guess I could, I could relay them up through this official reporting channel. Um, and be a, a sort of a node for that. But what's interesting is, again, this sort of psychological need to be validated or to share this experience with someone. And, and a lot of them do. They reach out to me and they say, I saw you on 60 Minutes and you don't seem crazy and I'm not crazy. <laughs> and I just need to share with you this experience I had, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago or, uh, you know, it's, it's as if they want me to hold it with them and share this burden that they've been carrying around that they've been too afraid to, to share or they didn't know where to share it without sounding crazy or uh, you know, maybe risking their, their, their career or their relationships uh, by being lumped in with the, the UFO freaks. So uh, I think that that's a really interesting uh, phenomenon that's happening right now and, and um, I try to acknowledge as much as I can. I try to send back a, at least a one-liner and I say, thank you for sharing. I, I hear you, I see you, hang in there. <laughs> uh, well, you know, people now associate you with, you know, the, the Lieutenant Commander who's talking about UFOs, but really, you know, you've had a very successful career as a fighter pilot. You've broken a, broken a lot of barriers. I mean, in a very male dominated, uh, industry, so to speak, uh, it must not have been easy for you. I'd love to know sort of what that has been like as you've now retired and you're kind of looking back, you know, the barriers that you broke and now that you're helping others break as well. Sure. Well, I'd say, first of all, that I stand on the shoulder of giants. And although I am one of a handful of female fighter pilots, uh, I am not the first. Uh, and, and there are women who, who were truly groundbreaking uh, and dating all the way back to World War II with the, the WASPs, the Women Air Force Service Pilots who served uh, in, as instructors, as uh, 
you know, transporting the aircraft off the assembly line to their various bases within the US in order to free up the men to go uh, overseas and deploy in the combat zone. So, so those women were flying uh, these, these beast aircrafts, these bombers and, and fighters uh, long before me and, and my generation of, of women pilots. Uh, and so I just wanna give a, a tip of the hat to them. And then of course, in the eighties and nineties, there were really the first uh, combat uh, women who entered after the, the repeal of the uh, combat exclusion. Uh, and I think that was under the Clinton administration in 91, 92. Uh, and so those first women really uh, just a, a load of gratitude to them. Uh, but it, you know, that we, we haven't reached a, a critical mass yet. We are, are still working to provide networks of support for, for young women who are coming up through uh, flight school and into the fleet. So it's important for them to have uh, a, a lateral network of support with peers uh, so that they don't feel the, the tokenism being the only uh, woman or the, the only minority in a squadron, that can be hard. Uh, and then also that they have a vertical network of support, that they have mentors and role models uh, in the senior ranks. And so you know, each year we're getting uh, a few more that uh, promote to uh, command or promote to even the ranks of admiral uh, in order to provide that, that line of support back down. If you can see it, you can be it. Uh, and so... I was already out of the squadron the first time that I was able to attend a conference. It's called the Women in Aviation International. Uh, but when I did, it was one of the first times that I had ever connected with other women in flight suits in, in a large group. And there were probably 70 or 80 in the room, military aviators in this group of thousands of other uh, civilian pilots and air traffic controllers and maintainers, everybody in the aviation industry. But I just thought, wow, where have you been all my life, all my career, uh, you know, like unicorns. Uh, and so there's been a real effort to connect now, which is, is much easier to do with social media and all of our online networks. Uh, so we've, we've really tried to organize and reach out to those young women who are coming up uh, and lift them up with support uh, as we can, whether it's uh, meeting up in, in these little local chapters, uh, you know, we have Facebook groups and, and things like that, or or whether it's actually going to something formal like this annual conference uh, to to share our stories and provide professional advice and just support each other in our development. And you're a founding member of the military's e-mentor program, which is promoting membership and opportunity for you know future generations of minorities in non-traditional fields. And I think you there are the various programs that you support. What drives you to do what you do, and 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 what are a couple of these programs that you're you're hoping will make a difference? Yeah, absolutely. So we're very proud of e-mentor, and again, that's one of those formal initiatives to try to connect uh, women and minorities to to be deliberate and methodical about uh, mentoring, to create time and space for them to, uh, for these young women to say, these are my goals, or these are my questions, and to connect them with mentors who can say, yeah, I've been there, done that. Let me tell you uh, my experience, my lessons learned, or my mistakes, <laughs> so that maybe you can avoid or minimize your own. 
And then these, these networking groups like Women in Aviation International, I'm a huge fan of that. Piggybacking on that is the Wings for Val Foundation. So every year we go to WAI uh, and offer a scholarship in honor of uh, our friend and, and fellow jet pilot, uh, Val Delaney, who we lost too soon in a training mishap. Uh, she was a parlor pilot out of Washington State and um, we were just devastated to lose her, but her, her living legacy is the scholarship program so that young girls and women can uh, experience the, the joy of flight and pursue a career in aviation uh, and just keep her legacy alive. I, there's one other program I wanna uh, put out there because it's another great scholarship uh, aviation opportunity for, for young folks. And that's um, my Illinois Math and Science Academy friend and, and classmate, Kenyatta Ruffin founded the Legacy Flight Academy and legacy is referring to the legacy of the Tuskegee Airmen. So those men who served in World War II in a segregated squadron because they were African-American, uh, but they served uh, bravely and, and with honor and they made a, a significant difference in the, the course of our, our uh, tactical advantage in the war. And so this program is, it provides, it's like a summer camp for underserved communities to, for youth to come out and again, experience aviation and, and see the potential if it's something that they uh, would like to pursue. And so it gives them that opportunity and that's called Legacy Flight Academy. Now you're also an award-winning instructor with the Naval ROTC. You, you know, been a permanent military instructor at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis. You're teaching leadership and ethics. What's the core message that you try to instill in your students? So I have been teaching for the last 10 years and I'm just in awe of this next generation. I have a lot of friends and older family members who say, what's going on with kids these days? <laughs> the millennial generation. And, and actually we're on to generation Z. We're actually even past millennials now in terms of who's in school and who's graduating right now. And I just am inspired by them. I, I don't, <laughs> I, I'm not uh, frustrated or, or annoyed with them at all. I think that they, they're different. Uh, they're, they're not better or worse, they're different in their uh, motivation and in their communication style and, and all of that. But I'm, I'm just in awe of their ability to, to really think critically about the issues at hand and their ability to organize and um, just leverage the technology that we, uh, you know, as a Gen Xer or, or my, my boomer dad right now, I was trying to help him get his internet set up here. Uh, and he, you know, the, the, we're in good hands with this next generation. And so um, I'm just trying to get out of their way <laughs> as an educator and an instructor and, and to reassure them that, that they, are, they can be the leaders of the next generation and they don't have to fall into the trap of hero worship or the great man theory of, of looking at history for World War II, Korea, Vietnam heroes to worship uh, or emulate, you know, thank you gentlemen for your service, uh, but really the, the future is, is cyber, right? The future is 
counterinsurgency, the future is uh, a, a very different battlefield and it's gonna take a different kind of leader and operator and technical and tactical expertise. And the kids are all right. They're, they're rising to that challenge and uh, they, they have what it takes uh, and they just need to be encouraged and supported on that path uh, and not uh, shamed or um, belittled for the quirks that make them that their own generation, that they have their own identity. Looking back at the young woman that you were, who took her first flight on 9-11, who became one of the nation's first female strike fighter aviators, a seasoned operator who fought for her country, teacher, mentor. What would you say looking back to that young woman about the journey that you've been on, Alex? I would say uh, find a mentor uh, at each phase along the way. I think it took me a while to figure that out, how important mentorship was. I would say keep an open mind and, and, and keep your, your sense of humor. I think that that's really gotten me through some tough times and some challenging choppy waters is, is being able to laugh and, and find humor even in the darkest hours uh, because otherwise you just, you just go crazy. You're in addition to everything else, you're also a mom and you've been through this past year of uh, COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, have you had any what I call uh, viral insights in the wake of COVID-19, that moment of clarity brought upon by a crisis? Yeah, so, th so this past year has really emphasized the importance of, of making sure your priorities are straight and of prioritizing your connections. I, I know that we were cut off uh, from our village with, with three small children and that everyone says it takes a village uh, to raise kids, but when you're cut off from them, it's you appreciate how much they, how much, how much that village matters. And so uh, that, and then, you know, friends and family, uh, the really important relationships that in 2019, you might've said, oh, you know, I'll, I'll, get around to calling that person or I'll get around to visiting that person uh, in 2020 when you couldn't, when, when travel was restricted and uh, physical contact was limited, uh, you, you really realized how much you take those relationships for granted and that you should reach out and, and prioritize friends and family and, and who is important to you when you can before it's too late, before you can't. Alex, thank you so much for joining me on When It Mattered and for sharing your amazing and inspiring story. Thank you, I wish you the best and uh, stay safe. Lieutenant Commander Alex Dietrich served as an FA-18F strike fighter pilot from the VFA-41 Black Aces of Lemoore, California. She recently retired from the U.S. Navy after having logged over 1,250 hours and 375 carrier-arrested landings. Lieutenant Commander Dietrich served two combat deployments in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. Her last deployment was a year-long boots-on-ground deployment as a provincial reconstruction team engineer in Ghazni, Afghanistan. Dietrich is now retired from active duty and serving at the National Center for Atmospheric Research on their talent learning and development team with a mission of science and service to society. 
She continues to mentor young aviators, especially women and minorities, through programs including her alma mater, the Illinois Math and Science Academy, the Legacy Flight Academy, and Wings for Val Women in Aviation International. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. When It Mattered is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.